let's go ahead and end with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your love and for your kingdom and for the way you run your universe. We ask that your spirit will enlighten our minds today, join together with, uh, with each other in love. We pray that your uh, will be done on what's happening on the earth. There's so many people that are struggling. There's conflicts going on. Um, many injustices of all kinds. And, and ultimately, Lord, these events are transpiring because um, people's hearts are turning away from you and the world is becoming ever more hardened. We ask that those whose hearts and minds are still sensitive to your spirit will be enlightened by your spirit to discern the difference between your methods and principles and the way of the world and that they can be drawn and solidified into your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing a new, starting a new quarter today, and the quarter is on Genesis, and that is the title of the new study guide. And as we get into the new quarter, uh, I want to read from the introduction. Oh, one quick announcement. If you're, if you're a visitor here today, uh, the, our class uh, group is having a potluck at 1 and then a, an afternoon Bible discussion at 3. If you're interested in uh, being part of the class and going over with some food or being a visitor where you don't bring any food, just come on over and, and be part of the group. Um, Karen, who's in the back here, will, will be available to tell you where it's at. It's only about like a mile or so from here. So one, of the, one of our uh, members, Lori's home, will be hosting this. So she'll give you directions. But uh, potluck at 1 and Bible study at three. So uh, introduction to the study guide uh, says the following in the introduction. The English word Genesis is derived from the Greek word Genesis, which means beginning, which itself is derived from a Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word means in the beginning, the first word of the book, hence the first word of the entire Bible. Genesis gives us the foundation base upon which all the following scriptures rest because it is first and so foundational to all that comes after Genesis is probably the most quoted and referenced book in the rest of scripture. Well, for many of the reasons cited here, I, that was one of the reasons I went ahead and paraphrased the book of Genesis because it is foundational. So many critical beliefs, our origins, uh, the introduction of sin and how that started, uh, the promise of the plan of salvation. So many foundational truths are in Genesis. There's no question about that. However, there's an idea also expressed in this paragraph that isn't as tightly connected. And therefore, um, I want to explore this idea. And this is the idea that because Genesis is first, it's foundational. Well, in fact, is that true? Um, the Genesis scripture being first. Most Bible scholars actually believe Genesis is not the first book of scripture. What is the first book written of scripture? Job, Job is the first book written of scripture. Now consider, if we had arranged our Bible with Job as the first book. So the first words we read are the book of Job, followed by Genesis, which is how Moses wrote it. Does that shift the lens? What is the very first scene in the book of Job? A meeting in heaven. A meeting in heaven in which Satan begins making accusations. In other words, Job sets a great controversy. That's the foundation. The great conner is a war, a bigger war, a cosmic war going on. That is the first words or did, uh, uh, thought written by Moses, who then wrote Genesis and the other five books to follow after that. And the key in the book of Job, by the way, isn't how a righteous man suffers. 
The key is the conflict over God's character. And in chapter 42, verse 7, God clarifies the key, commending Job for having said of God what is right. Satan is lying about me. Your friends are lying about me. Job, you said of me what's right. This is the key to understanding Scripture. This is the, we don't wage wars the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. What do we demolish? We demolish arguments and pretensions that sets us up against what? 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 The knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is always central. It's the key. Where did you say that we got that? The Job is the first book. All Bible scholars agree. You just look up any, any, just the, the history of the of looking at the 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 book. Job is the first book written. So, Ellen White got this right. Surprise, surprise. I don't know how she could have. Since she copied it from other people, which is alleged by some. No, the conflict of the ages series. You know what the conflict of the ages series is? The first book, Patriarchs and Prophets. That's right. First words in the first book of her series that is the, the conflict of the ages, which, which, which describes the war between good and evil, between Christ and Satan. The first words of the book I'm going to read to you starts uh, page 33, God is love. His nature, his law is love. It ever has been, it ever will be. It never changes. God's constant. Keep going. The high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose ways are everlasting, changes not. With him, there's no variableness of turning nor shadow of turning. Every manifestation of creative power is an expression of infinite love. Notice we start with God's character. The sovereignty of God involves fullness of blessing to all created beings. The history of the great conflict between good and evil from the time it first began in heaven to the final overthrow of rebellion and the total eradication of sin is also a demonstration of God's unchanging love. Where, so, so the conflict of the ages series, she starts at where? In Genesis? In heaven, where Moses started it with the book of Job. But we've missed it because we moved Job down and we put Genesis up. Uh, one more paragraph. The sovereign of the universe was not alone in his work of beneficence. He had an associate, a co-worker, who could appreciate his purposes, who could share the joy and so forth. And talk about the word was made flesh. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. This is the great controversy setting over God's character, his law, his methods. And this is the lens we must have if we really want to understand what's happening in Scripture. Without this lens, we project all of these human ideas into it. Imperial law, rules, authority, punishment, which we're going to see in spades in this lesson. And not, not this week, but in this quarterly. Next week, I read ahead. You come back next week, you'll, you'll, you'll enjoy it. <laughs> yes, it is true that Job, in fact, as a human being, his personal existence came into existence after the Genesis account, because he's a descendant of Adam also. But the great controversy theme, the, the real theme of history is a war in heaven began before humans were created on earth. So and with that in mind, let's jump to Wednesday's lesson. And if you'll notice, I have this giant quarterly. <laughs> because when I went to get it, 
last week when I needed it to prepare, they didn't have the regular ones. So I had to get the large, the only ones they had in were the large print version. <laughs> so don't think my eyes have gotten that bad. <clears throat> so Wednesday's lesson, with the great controversy in mind over God's character, um, uh, which is the creation of humanity. Rather than starting, the whole universe starts with God creating human beings. No, actually it doesn't. Because if you go to Job, which is written first, there's a conflict in heaven already. And in Job, I think it's chapter 38, you discover that the angels rejoiced when the earth was created. So they're already in existence prior to the Genesis account. So we wouldn't fall into this trap that the Genesis 1 account is actually the description of God making his entire universe. It is not. The Genesis 1 account is the description of terraforming planet Earth and the solar system. He'd already created the entire universe sometime other. But this planet, this solar system, this new creation, that's the Genesis account. But when we put it first, we're led to think that everything was created in Genesis 1. It's a misconception. So, with the idea that the, that the terraforming of earth, the creation uh, account in Genesis, which I take to be very literal, six literal days of creation, humankind made from the dirt of the earth and breathed into, take it all very literal, but, but it's happening in a context. So is there a purpose? Is there a pers- purpose in God's omniscient foreknowledge as to why he chose to wait until after the war began to create humans? Wasn't that what it was all about, kind of? Satan wanted to be in with the creation? Well, God God was creating other intelligences. We don't know. We don't have a history of that, but there are other worlds out there. So we don't know whether or not Satan was in contact with the other worlds, too, at the same time. Contact with? Contact with with the the plans to create it. Oh, I think it's very confident, confident he was not. He's not a creator. He can't enter into infinity. God lives in unapproachable light, unapproachable because a finite being can't enter into infinity. It's beyond us. We would we would be destroyed in that atmosphere. Well, in that case, it is strange that he... So is there some reason God in his creating, with his foreknowledge and seeing, uh, chose to create human beings after Satan's rebellion? And I believe that there's insight that we have that, in fact, this particular creation might have caused or triggered... Satan, in a certain way. But the idea here is creation of humanity. What was the purpose? Well, did uh, God send Satan down here to see what he could do? Because he was trying to say, hey, I want to be above you. I want to be equal with you. So, okay, here's a place. Show me what you can do. I like it. (laughs) I know I like it very much. How is the earth described before Jesus begins creating Without form and void, okay, and and, uh, and darkness is upon the face of the deep. deep. So we could call this a dark black abyss, okay. Where does Satan come up out of in Revelation? The abyss. Uh, Where was he cast down to? The The earth, okay. And the earth, when he was cast down, we can put these pieces together in the context, he's alleging equality with Christ in heaven. Christ is a creator. Lucifer is a created being. Uh, he's claiming that there's really no difference. How does God work? I give you my verbal declarations, believe or else, or God gives evidence to persuade. Just see what reality, people. 
And so he, I think, I think it's very legitimate what you're suggesting, and we can make a case for it from Scripture, that the war in heaven, Satan and his sympathizers are cast to the earth. And at that time, the earth was, in Genesis 1, void and without form. And God says, okay, Satan, you claim equality, show us what you can do. Of course, nothing happens. He can't create. And then Jesus comes along and says, let there be light. Let the firmament come forth. And so forth and so on. And we see a difference. So I think the, the, creation, it's, the creation account itself is part of it. But why, why humans? We're talking about humans now. Yes. At this point, it seems like the angels, even though they had tentatively made some decisions, weren't really positive about which being was right. At least half of the angels, it seems, were convinced one way and the other half had questions towards Satan. So at the time of the Revelation 12 account, war in heaven, Satan and his angels fought against Michael. Michael's angels fought back and they were not strong enough and they were cast out. I think about a third of the angels went. Okay, Those who stayed loyal, though, were not sealed. They were not settled. They were not beyond temptation. In the book of Job, what we see is Satan trying to recruit more, trying to undermine their confidence, trying to suggest that God doesn't really know hearts and minds, trying to suggest Job's only, uh, only pretends to be good because God pays well. And, if I can, and, 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 and angels who can't read hearts and minds, because if they could, they wouldn't have been deceived by Lucifer in heaven, the third that were. If, if Job curses God, as Satan says he would, Job looks to the rest, uh, Satan looks to the angels in heaven and says, see, I told you. He's wrong about Job and he's wrong about me. You can't trust what God says. This is really the process going. It's the great controversy, trying to recruit more. Okay? So he casts out. Creation happens. Jesus creates. But, but the sympathy, Satan is not cast out of the sympathy of the angels who are so loyal. They love him. They, they, they care for him. They, they, who knows how many eons that they've traveled with him and known him and had him over for potluck at their house. And, uh, and so he's not cast out of their sympathy until you read in, in the Gospels where Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be cast out, and I, if I am lifted up, will draw all unto me. And so at the cross, that is when the revelation of God's true character, his methods, his principles were revealed on the one side, and Satan exposed himself as a murderer on the other side, and that is when the loyal angels lost all sympathy from heaven. That is when his movements were restricted to the planet Earth, because not because of a force shield, but because every being in not on earth had now seen the truth of both sides so clearly they were now settled and they would not give satan any more time so when he tries to present lies talk to the hand we're not listening okay mr white say someplace that other planets had tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they passed the test correct they all had, all once he began his rebellion, every sentient intelligent being had to decide for themselves because of the way God's kingdom worked, it's the kingdom of truth, love, and freedom. God wants loyalty, friendship, devotion, um, um, self-sacrifice, other-centeredness. You can't get loyalty, friendship, devotion by threatening to kill people who are not, don't love you and aren't loyal to you. You have to win them. Okay, So God presents truth and love. And left all of his intelligent beings free to weigh the evidence for themselves, come to their own conclusion. But let's go now because we're, we're still trying to get to, we haven't got to man yet, the purpose of man. We're, we're just talking creation. So let's, let's get into the, why, why man? Why human beings? And consider this quotation uh, out of the, uh, first is uh, Review and Herald, April 14, 1896. And I'll follow that up with uh, Review and Herald, June 18, 1895. 
The agencies of Satan are at work in, uh, to keep the minds of men engrossed with the things of this life in order that they may work counter to the mission and work of Christ. It, it, the things of this life, is that just entertainment and the routines of paying bills and going to work? Or the things of this life, including politics, social justice through governments and wars? That you get caught up in the outrageousness of what's happening and you get on fire and angry and you get caught up in the things of this life. Of, of Satan, Christ declared he abode not in the truth. Once Satan was in co-partnership with God, Jesus, and the holy angels. Co-partnership. Co-partnership. Well, that would be agreement, cooperation, harmony, like-mindedness, working upon the same principles towards the same goals. Right? Yeah, he was, he was in harmony. He was, he was, in, he was uh, agreed. He had the same uh, visions and passions and so forth. All right. He was uh, highly exalted in heaven and was radiant in light and glory and that came from the Father and the Son. But he became disloyal, lost his high and holy position as a covering cherub. He became the antagonist of God, an apostate, and was excluded from heaven. He established his empire and planted the standard of rebellion against the law of Jehovah. How? How did he do that? Lies. Okay, lies, but against the law of Jehovah. Every sin must meet its punishment. Urge Satan. Zara of ages 762. What kind of law requires inflicted punishment? Impose law. law. Do you have to inflict a punishment on somebody who jabs a pencil in their eye? No. Smokes cigarettes? Jumps off the Empire State Building? No. When you understand God's laws are the laws that life and health actually are constructed to operate upon. And breaking them hardens the heart, sears the conscience, warps the character, and ultimately severs the connection with the source of life, resulting in withering away and dying. You don't have to inflict punishment upon people. You have to restore them. The broken branches have to be reconnected to the vine. The infection of selfishness and fear have to be replaced with love and trust. Healing has to occur. Restoration has to occur. Not, not inflicted punishment. It's Satan's lie. And, and it's, the entire world has accepted it. Because the entire world, whether they believe in God or don't believe in God, believes the God of the Bible is the God who will inflict punishment on you for disobedience. And that's why so many have rejected, if we get to it in the lesson, which I don't think we will, but if we get to it in the lesson, we're talking about evolution versus creationism, and why the evolutionists. The evolutionists don't believe in God, still believe the lie about God's law. That's why they don't believe in God. They don't believe in God because the kind of God they've been told from the wine of Babylon is, he's a God who makes up rules that if you don't do what he says, he will torture you in hell for eternity. Well, who wants to believe in a God like that? So, continuing on with the quote. He invited all the powers of evil to rally about his standard in order to form a desperate companionship of evil to league against the God of heaven. He worked perseveringly and determinedly to perpetuate his rebellion and to cause men to turn from Bible truth and to stand under his banner. Now, listen to this. As soon as the Lord, through Jesus Christ, created our world and placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Satan announced, pause, if he was announcing as soon as we were being created, uh, does that mean he was already there? Yeah. 
Another, another indicator, there's multiple ones if you look for them, that Genesis account is not creation of all the universe and all the intelligence. It's creation of Earth and our solar system. Anyway, uh, as soon as the Lord Jesus Christ created our world and placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Satan announced his purpose to conform to his own nature, the father and mother of all humanity, and to unite them with his own ranks of rebellion. What's Satan's purpose? To make human beings who were created in the image of God to be temples for the indwelling spirit, beings who live upon the living law of love. Living law of love is not a rule, a code. It's a protocol for life. This is how we're designed to live. To, to take those beings and replace God's methods, principles, character, and law with his own evil methods, principles, character, and the law of sin and death. Satan wants to dwell where God designed is designed to dwell in the spirit temple. Continuing on with the quote, Satan was determined to efface the image of God from the human posterity and to trace his own image upon the soul in place of the divine image. He adopted methods of deception by which to accomplish his purpose. What's his goal? Understand, his goal is not changed. Look around today. His goal is to make human beings the habitation of demons, that we reflect his character, methods, and principles and how we live, govern, and treat other people. That's his goal. To place his standard of, of right and wrong where God's standard should be. So he does this by deceiving people. He gets to deceive, he deceives people to believe that what they are doing is right when what they're doing is actually wrong. Yes? Now, how could he do that? By exchanging the very standard of right and wrong for a false standard. Exchanging design law for made-up rules. Once you've exchanged that, understand every rule you make as a human legislator or, or government will always have the winners and the losers. Rules can never be enforced in a way that somebody is not harmed by them. Somebody is disenfranchised, diminished for the advantage of the other. And when we just make up rules and enforce them upon people. He does this by twisting reality so that good is called evil and evil is called good. Such as, it is good in society today to flaunt every type of perverse sexual expression and relationship in your workplace. Come in and tell people how you have conducted yourself this weekend and who and what kind of strange and weird partners you've had. That's okay. But it is evil to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in your workplace. You don't think our society calls good evil and evil good today? He's able to do this because he's replaced design law with the imposed law. Design laws... uh, And when you do that, there's no standard. There's no measure. People don't know how to measure right and wrong anymore. And so you have weird, well, it's right to to do all these restrictions of our behavior because some unelected person who's never actually done any clinical treatment of anybody in their whole life has told us that we must behave this way. This week. But next week, we can be that. But then the other week, we can be that. But then we can lose one. 
How can we tell what's right? There's no standard. No, no. But when you get design law, the laws of health never change. And when you've educated yourself for God's laws, whether they're the laws of physical health, whether the laws of, of, uh, of physics, whether the laws of relational health, there, there are laws that, that relationships operate on. You cannot have a healthy relationship by cheating and lying in that relationship. It's not possible. You can't do it. You also can't have a healthy mind by cheating and lying. Your mind gets damaged. You have more fear. You have more guilt. You have more worry. You have more anxiety. You don't walk around in peace. That actually has a consequence of activating amygdala, increasing inflammatory factors, undermining your physical health. You don't function as well. You will get physically unwell. You can't have health violating God's laws. You, you diminish yourself. But that the, the standards that God has created life to operate upon have been set aside for rules. And justice and right and wrong are determined by what's legal, which is determined by, in our societies today, primarily people who don't believe in God. And almost every institution in our world today, outside the church, is run and directed by people who don't believe in God. And yet, they set the standard so many times what our church institutions set as right and wrong. We've seen this over the last two years. It was quite corrupt. Here's another quote. This is that second quote, Review and Herald, June 18, 1895. The life of Christ is to be revealed in humanity. Man was the crowning act of creation of God, made in the image of God. Get this, get this language. And designed to be a counterpart of God. But Satan has labored to obliterate the image of God in man and to imprint upon him his own image. Do you know what the word counterpart means? I I looked it up because because I inferred a meaning that really isn't true. Counterpart, I inferred to mean as friend, part, like partner, counterpart, partner, uh, co-worker. That's what I inferred. It's not what it means. The word counterpart actually means dictionary definition, quote, a person or thing closely resembling another, especially in function, unquote. We are to, re- he made us to resemble him in our function. Back to the question, the landscape, Job, the great controversy, the war in heaven, God's infinite wisdom, understanding the landscape of reality, choosing the time in which he makes mankind for a purpose. Counterpart, to resemble him in function. To resemble him. In character, in method, in function, to procreate in love and govern in love. An entire ecosystem and planet where we have two separate individuals, two unique identities with their own individualities, who were created to be one in love and in purpose and in motive, who would come together in love and would give of themselves literally in love and produce 
life in their own image. He told them be fruitful and multiply in a world before they rebelled. It was his plan that they would have children in a world without sin. And they would govern this planet as God governs the universe. And there are different levels of beings he created. Who knows how smart the animals were prior to the fall. I mean, right now, even after sin, are there some really smart animals? I mean, have you seen some of the stories that, like, these dogs that have saved and, and people in, in dire circumstances and so forth? Who knows how smart they were, but they were not as smart as Adam and Eve. Just as Lucifer is not on God's level. And by the way, what do you think the bigger gap is? Adam in his creation in Eden and an elephant. Or the bigger gap, Adam and an elephant, Adam and a lion, Adam and a dog. Lucifer and God. Okay, yeah, way bigger, way bigger gap. And do we see that maybe in, in Adam and Eve planning and organizing whatever they planned to do together, do you think they were consulting the elephant in their plans? No, because they were selfish and exclusionary, or because the animals, even with their intelligence, could, couldn't cooperate and participate on that level. This is why Lucifer was excluded out of councils that Christ was allowed in, because Christ is divine. He can participate in divine thoughts and processes. Lucifer could not. I mean, this, there's a lesson book here, and this is what the Bible teaches, that we are a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men. God created humankind to teach something. Profound. And if Adam and Eve would have stayed loyal and had not rebelled, they rejected Satan's lies. And they governed this world as God designed. What kind of law would they have governed the planet with? Would they have set up police forces? You think they would have had a weapons factory? In a sinless world governed in love? And if in the sinless world, sometime after Adam and Eve has rejected the lies of Satan, they did not take the fruit, they stayed faithful, they stayed loyal, they've had children, and their children have had children, and their children's children have had children, and the world is in harmony, and one day one of their children rebels and takes the fruit. What do you think Adam would have done? Do you think he would have set up a courtroom, brought in testimony, had a jury, set up a gallows and hung his child? You think that's what would have happened? Think it through. What do you think likely would have happened with the information we have from Scripture? They sacrificed him to save their other people. What, if, what would Adam have done? Sacri- killed that one so the others wouldn't get infected with rebellion? Somebody's shaking their head. Yes, that's what you got to do. You got to cut out the cancer. Kill them. Kill them. Kill them quick. Nip it in the bud. Soon as Adam, if Adam would have, u- if Adam would have used his power in a circumstance like that to kill his one son, what would have happened to all the other children's attitudes toward Adam? Would they said, "Oh, we feel so much safer now." <laughs> Uh, Or would they have had more fear and doubts about Adam's loving governance? So what would likely have happened 
If we look under imposed law, then yes, he's got to hold him accountable. He's got to punish. But well, come on, design law, folks, design law. Love him back. Well, Adam would have loved him back, but what would have likely happened? What did Adam and Eve do as soon as they sinned? They hid. So what's the sinner likely going to do here in our circumstance? What did the children of Israel do when Moses came down off the mountain, reflecting the fading glory of God on his face? What did they do when they saw that? Did they celebrate or did they get uncomfortable and run away and say, please hide it? So what would have happened to this sinner and Adam, would Adam have had fading glory on him? He's still loyal and faithful. Or would he be like one of the angels in heaven, bright as the sun, still radiating the glory of God? And what would have happened to the child who's in rebellion now? Would they have run into that presence or be running away? And might Adam, like Moses, put a veil over himself to try to reach his child? Might Jesus veil himself in human flesh to hide his glory? so that he could reach and save us. This is incredible if we think about the, the picture and the purpose of creating humankind. And we see Satan, though. Satan hates everything that exposes him as a liar. He hates it. He hates humanity and does not want us to fulfill the purpose that God created us to fulfill, to live in harmony with God's design, law of love, truth, and liberty, to, to be at peace with God and others. Satan wants to either destroy us or corrupt us so that we practice his methods and advance his kingdom. That's his goal. So he wants to take living beings, living temples of God, establish himself as the one enthroned in our hearts and minds, as the one we love, admire, worship, cherish, behave like. Not by saying, we like Satan with two horns and a red pitchfork. No, by saying we love a God who will use his power to torment and punish the people who've done us wrong. And we want to be like that God. We want to do that too. It's only right. Let's, let's, let's get our people in power. Let, let's get our troops over there. Let's kill these, these rebels. Who are you enthroning? But as we go down the path of embracing his methods, we enslave ourselves. We enslave ourselves. Lose our freedom. Advance the satanic character, we become his puppets. He's done a, he's a multi-stage strategy through history to advance his purposes of destroying the image of God and man. Prior to the flood, Satan not only worked to corrupt human character through lies and false worship, uh, to fill them with hate and selfishness and violence all the time, as it says in Genesis 6, but he also worked to corrupt the species to efface the image of God and man through genetic and hybridized manipulation of our physiology designed to change our actual physical natures, interfere with our normal brain functions to make us more animalistic and less in the image of God. Consider these quotes. This uh, Spiritual Gifts, page 64. But if there is one sin above another which called for the destruction of the race by the flood, it was the base crime of amalgamation of man and beast which defaced the image of God and caused confusion everywhere. Or this one, Spiritual Gifts, page 75. Every species of animal which God created were preserved in the ark. The confused species which God did not create, which were the result of amalgamation, were destroyed by the flood. 
Human beings prior to the flood, closer to the tree of life, had greater vitality than we do now. They were living almost a millennium, 900 and some years. About 10 times the vitality that we have. They could tolerate amalgamations that would kill us. Their lives are so hardy, closer to the tree of life. But it debased them, made them more animalistic, less like our loving creator. God not only put all those people to death in the first death of sleep, but he changed our physiology through a variety of interventions in our natural world that reduced our vitality to about a hundred years to diminish Satan's capacity. This isn't a punishment. This is a therapeutic intervention. All, all, all the three things that happened after the flood, the, the change in the environment, which reduced our vitality, makes it harder for us to be genetically merged or amalgamated with animals. We can't tolerate it. It's still happening. If you look at the genetic science today, it's happening again. We're doing it right now. So if you think that's fantasy, we're doing it right now. It's done. It's already being done. Second, made the uh, harder to actually earn a living, get food, which prevented idleness. Remember the idle hands of the devil's workshop? Okay. The, the useful labor. Third, confused the languages and introduced the various human races to prevent a global coalition and a planet-wide rebellion that happened before the flood. That won't happen again until right prior to the second coming. You read about it in Revelation. These are therapeutic interventions of love. But Satan's goal has not changed. He is still working to efface the image of God, to make us animalistic, to make us like him, to achieve his goals. He does this in a variety of ways, getting us to worship false gods by beholding. This is the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. We actually neurobiologically, characterologically change based on the idea of God that we believe or the God that we worship. Even if we don't worship a God, we worship the evolutionary method. That is our standard for living. That becomes our God. We become like that. You can't avoid it. What you spend time admiring, esteeming, valuing, and looking up to, you internalize in the way you practice and live. He, he attacked God's design for relationships. And then you can't have health violating the laws of health. So you violate the laws for relationships, you introduce damage, polygamy, male domination and control over their female spouses, or Female wives dominating their husbands and controlling them. Either way, injury happens to all parties. You can't have health while violating the laws of health. And Satan continues to work through all of these same methods that he's had through all history. But now today, 2022, he is advancing his plan to destroy the image of God and man through technology through genetic and cybernetic hybridization of the human being. This is an active plan of the financial elites. They're investing billions of dollars, research and otherwise, to create human hybrids. 
They don't believe in God. We just evolved. We, it, took, it took millions, hundreds of millions of years for us to go from slime to these incredible homo, 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 homo sapiens. Well, they don't want to wait hundreds of millions of years. We want to accelerate our next evolutionary advancement. So we will search the animal genome, identify genes that can advance us and improve us, and, and through our genetic technologies, introduce those into the human being to advance us and develop us, lengthen our life, have better healing qualities when we get injured, give us more physiological strength, run faster, jump higher, live longer, and cybernetic enhancements where we can have better memory, we can have immediate access. You don't need a cell phone to call anybody. You will have a chip in your head that you can access the Wi-Fi, and you can just uh, immediately, you can have things projected onto your retinas where you see in the back of your in the back of your visual fields because it's happening actually in your brain with this computer chip. You think I'm making this up? I wrote a blog. You can go to our website. The link's in the notes. Humans 2.0, the rise of the cyborg. And I give you the links to various sites where this is actively, publicly promoted in advance. You understand the vision here. The vision is to, through technology, eventually get, and, and, and they think they can have this within 10 to 20 years. Very, very close. Get to the point you can transfer your individuality, your consciousness, onto a cybernetic, a computer platform, a robotic body, so that you can have eternal life. That you will never die. Your body may decay, but your individual personhood will live on in some other body. Well, of course, that's very Christian. We absolutely teach that Jesus is coming to transfer our individuality, our consciousness, into an upgraded body, aren't we? This mortal will put on immortality. This corruption will put on incorruption. We will transfer ourselves out of this corruption. I mean, we won't do it ourselves, but we will have it transferred by God into a new body, yes or no? Yes. Isn't that a Christian teaching? Well, they just took God out of it. They're doing it themselves. This is the plan. Can you see why billions are being invested? Can sinful and selfish people create sinless, loving beings? No. Understand this. Any so-called advanced human 2.0s are not going to be more Christ-like. They will, they will view you and me, regular old homo sapiens... Like the, the distorted textbooks tell us that we view the Neanderthals. And the same outcome will happen. You either advance or you get eliminated. This is the view. My, my personal view, understanding how God created us. Your brain, the physiology of your brain, and all the amazing things that are working together in your brain creates a quantum matrix that interacts in an energy plane that you and I can't fully understand. This energy plane is how the Holy Spirit interacts with us. When you've ever had those moments where you've been impressed, some people even hear the still, small voice, that is the Holy Spirit working through your quantum computer impressing through quantum strings that connect all the universe, influencing your mind with truths or impressions or convictions. Who would like to cut that tie? Absolutely. What do you think happens when you put an artificial chip in your brain that changes the, 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 the wavelengths of how your brain operates? 
My personal theory is that as we move down this trail, it is part of solidifying Satan's image in people, cutting people off in the influence. We become more selfish, more survival fittest driven, more satanic in character, and we're cut off from the Holy Spirit. That's the real purpose, I think, behind this. He's finishing his plan to efface the image of God in man, to turn us into synagogues of Satan, as Revelation describes it. I thought somebody had a comment. The ultimate battlefield is for your mind, so that would make perfect sense. That's, I just wanted to cover that. All right, well, I guess uh, yeah, I agree with you completely, yeah. So a couple, several more exciting things in the lesson. Uh, Sabbath lesson, um, the most important, it says in Sabbath lesson, we'll jump back there real quick. It says, the most important lesson of the biblical story of the beginnings is a lesson on grace. I, I found this quite interesting, the way they use that here. It says, our existence is purely an act of grace. Um, I, I wanted to affirm this because typically when, when people who have more of a legal view of, of things, grace means what in the legal view of things? Unmerited favor. You deserve punishment. God is going to be gracious to you and not punish you and send a savior instead. It's something you don't deserve is, is typically how grace is taught in the penal view. But in this context, it is really the design law view. And the design law view is grace is always the outworking of God's character, which is gracious. God is gracious. And graciousness is the, the disbursement of his energy, his presence, his abilities, his actions, his power for the good of his creation. And thus, he created us out of his gracious love. And so this is a design law expression if you're going to say that creation was an act of grace. It's not a penal view. Because Adam and Eve were created in sinless perfection. There was nothing they didn't deserve at that point. Unless you say, well, they didn't deserve to be created. That doesn't make sense, does it? All right. Tuesday's lesson, first paragraph. This is about the Sabbath. Oh, we'll have some fun on the Sabbath today, won't we? It is precisely because God ended his work of creation that he instituted the Sabbath. The seventh-day Sabbath is therefore an expression of our faith that God finished his work then and that he found it very good. To keep the Sabbath is to join with God in the recognition of the value and beauty of his creation. So we're going to come back to, to one statement there, but let's, let's walk through this pretty quick. Was there a Sabbath before the events described in Genesis? No. Get your mind around that. The angels in heaven. If you if you if you have a, a nice computer working in your head and you're dropping in lots of you know other references and historical things you've read, you might remember that Ellen White said that the war in heaven began over a question of God's law, and it'll end over the same issue. Began in heaven over a question over God's law, it will end over the same issue. What is mother and father? What does that mean to to an angel? Okay. Mothers and fathers. And we'll get to that. What, God's law. Was there a Sabbath in heaven? No. So it didn't begin over the Sabbath in heaven. It won't end over the Sabbath either. That doesn't mean the Sabbath won't be involved, but it won't be over the Sabbath. It'll be over a question of God's law. And you're exactly right. The Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments didn't exist in heaven. Angels didn't have a law to honor their mothers and fathers, or sins will pass down two and three generations amongst the angels. The Ten Commandments are a codification or distillation of the great law of love and liberty and truth that all the universe operates upon, specifically for the needs of a sinful human species. It was written that way for the, our need. It wasn't always in existence in that codif codified form. So, 
No Sabbath in heaven. The Sabbath, Jesus said, was made. I mean, it had a beginning. So, question to you all, because you know I really, really like the design law of you. I don't like imposed rules. I don't like made-up things. So if the Sabbath actually had a beginning, it didn't always exist eternally, then are the penal legal people right? God makes up laws. Since it was made. We should be able to answer that, shouldn't we? It depends on why one believes the Sabbath was made. Not the fact it was made. What was its purpose? Why was it made? Made for what? Well, the Sabbath was made as a rule that you must keep. Jesus said it. The Sabbath was made as a rule you must keep. You were not made. Uh, wait, wait, no, that's not what he said, is it? The, sa- the Sabbath was actually made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Uh-huh. Okay, well, that gives us a clue. It was made for man, for our benefit, as a gift in some way. Hmm. We weren't made to keep it. Well, if we have a design law view, it changes our view of things. The Sabbath was created for a purpose to fulfill a need that didn't exist in God's universe prior to his creating it. There was a need that came along. For some reason, the Sabbath was needed now. Did God in his foreknowledge know man would fall, even though he didn't want him to? He didn't predestine him to. He didn't cause him to. He provided every provision for him not to. Did he still know he would fall? And do you think God, with that foreknowledge, perhaps provided a gift that would be beneficial to all humankind till he came again? So what's the purpose of the Sabbath? Wouldn't be rule-keeping. What would it be? Well, consider this. Another thing that had a beginning, according to our Bible reference, the rainbow. According to the Bible, the rainbow had a beginning. I will place the rainbow in the clouds. Prior to that, evidently, it didn't have one. And according to God, the rainbow was placed there for a purpose. What was its purpose? As a sign. Is the Sabbath a sign of something? Well, keep that in mind. Let's finish this, uh, the analogy of the rainbow. And is the rainbow an evidence of imposed rules or an outworking, an expression of design law? How does a rainbow get in the clouds? God made up a rule and he uses magic power to make it happen? Or the rainbow occurs as an outworking of the laws of physics with light shining through water and being diffracted. Interesting. So here we have something that was made that didn't exist before, but it wasn't a rule made up. It was made out of the fabric of reality itself for a purpose to encourage and give a sign and and take away fear. Okay? So the Sabbath, too, was created out of the fabric of reality itself, but the fabric this time wasn't the physical matter. It was time. The, fa- see, the fabric of reality, space, time, matter, energy. And this time God created something out of the fabric of time. Did time exist before the Sabbath? Yes, it did. (laughs) We have day one, evening and morning the first day. Day two, evening and morning the second day. Did time exist? Yes, time existed. But now God, so God out of the fabric of reality creates a day for a purpose, like the rainbow was made for a purpose. And what is the purpose the Bible tells us? Well, 
says in Ezekiel 20.12, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between us so that they would know that I, the Lord, made them holy. A sign is a mark, an object that conveys meaning, something that symbolizes a message. The Sabbath is a sign, a mark. To humanity that he knew would fall into sin for a purpose. It was a gift to convey a message. In this way, the Sabbath is like a flag. Think about a national flag, a nation's flag. A nation's flag is made for its citizens. The citizens are not made for the flag. Yes or no? The Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. A flag is created to inspire the people with patriotic love and loyalty for their country. Yes or no? The Sabbath was created to inspire humans with love and loyalty to God. A flag reminds people of the history, values, and principles of a nation. When people see the old Soviet flag, they're reminded of different values than when they see the British, Canadian, or American flag. The Sabbath was given to remind us of God's government, methods, principles, the kingdom of truth, love, and freedom. Flag, just like you said. When people are taken into captivity in war, you're at you're a POW. You're a POW in some enemy camp, and you see your national flag flying somewhere. What does it do for you? Does it inspire you? Does it encourage you with hope that your people will come and rescue you? We are captives in this world of sin. The Sabbath is a flag, a reminder, a sign that God will make us holy. He will rescue us from sin, take us out of the camp of this evil world. Have you ever been proud to wave your nation's flag? Are you proud to wave the, the Sabbath? To celebrate it as a sign that God is delivering us, taking out sin from us and making us holy. He has not abandoned us. He foreknew our need. He posted this sign, this sign into time itself. So no nation, no kingdom, no power, including Satan himself, could take this reminder from you. He's coming to make you holy. It still flies. The Sabbath flies. Every week it flies. But I know someone's going to ask, someone, I'm going to get an email. Okay, fine, that's beautiful, but, but what about Sabbath keeping? How, what, what rules are we to keep on the Sabbath? As soon as you ask that question, what have you just done? That question, immediately if you try to answer it, takes you down what path? Satan's view of God's kingdom. You're now in Satan's camp. It's all about rule enforcement. It would be like saying, I got married. What rules do I have to keep? What rules? 
Do I have to actually not go to the bar anymore? Do I actually have to stop seeing other people? That's what it would be like asking. Okay, fine. As soon as you go down that camp, you're no longer a Sabbath keeper. You're like those who want him off the cross. It's not a gift. It's a constraint that steals your, your liberty and joy. So Sabbath is a sign that God makes us holy. We present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to the Lord. Now, can we keep ourselves holy one day a week? Or is that a seven-day-a-week operation? So Sabbath-keeping is more than a a, a one-day-a-week operation. It's a flag that comes through every week to remind us that God makes us holy. But we are to we are to remember all week long. Remember the Sabbath all week long. Remember my kingdom, my kingdom which is revealed in the Sabbath. Truth presented in love, leaving people free. Because when was the Sabbath made? In the context of what? We have already established Job's first. The war's already begun. Satan's rebellion. God begins to give evidence. He begins giving truths that he's creator. He begins creating an ecosystem, entire planet, operating on the principles of love. He shares creative power with intelligent beings. He gives sovereignty to govern. He's showing how the kingdom works. Truth presented in love. And then he says, you've seen my power. You get in line or I'll kill you. No. Then he says, I rest my case. I rest. I stop using power. I, I can't have your friendship and love if you're afraid and intimidated because I'm powerful. So I create the space and time for you to think for yourself without pressure, without coercion. I rest. I stop using power. Liberty. Freedom. The Sabbath is the embodiment of religious liberty. Truth presented in love, leaving people free. We don't coerce. We don't compel. We're one. And we celebrate all week, and so we practice those methods in how we treat others. The true Sabbath keepers are those who live the truth, present the truth in love, and leave people free. Well, is the Sabbath still binding? Somebody's going to email me. Well, I would ask you, if you ask that question, binding what? The way we teach it, rightly understood, the Sabbath gift to humankind helps God bind truth and love into our hearts. It binds it into our hearts as we appreciate its meaning and what it represents in the kingdom and and, and how he operates. God is creator. His laws are design laws. He gives us real freedom. But there was a, a anybody want to comment on that? A couple quick points I want to make and try to wrap it up. Uh, in, in the lesson it said, it is precisely because God ended his work of creation that he instituted the Sabbath. The seventh-day Sabbath is therefore the expression of our faith. I think this is badly worded. The Sabbath is an expression of God's character. Our appreciation, valuing and cherishing it is an expression of our faith. But its existence, its creation, is an expression of God, not an expression of our faith. I think it's poorly worded. I think we know what they meant, though. I'm going to skip the evolution, creation issue. We've gone over it before. It's in the notes. You're going to see. I can just tell you, if you're an actual scientist and you look at the testable evidence, every data point is refutes godlessness and, and uh, life coming in on its own. And every data point supports um, the biblical narrative of creation. So... Let's go to Thursday's lesson. 
see a couple points I want to get to. Thursday's lesson is uh, the duty of humanity. And it talks about the first duty to the environment. Next duty uh, um, is, is the food concerns and, and, the, and the third duty. But let's talk about this idea of our duty. Our first duty. I asked a couple patients in my office this week. Um, I said, what is the fir- your first duty as a human being? What is your first duty from a biblical worldview as a human being? Your first responsibility. Uh, not just yours, I said. Every human being in a biblical worldview's first priority and duty is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then the second duty would be loving others as yourself. But first duty is loving God. That's exactly right. So, what does it mean in the world today to have that to live out that first duty? Do we still have responsibility to God? And, and to be a good steward to the planet. And does Satan twist these various responsibilities and duties to get them out of order so that people will be carrying out some duty they think honors God, which is actually injuring themselves and others? Well, let's look at some of this. Um, <clears throat> what happens if we prioritize the health of the planet over the health of people? If we prioritize the health of the planet over the health of the people, are we carrying out God's purpose to be good stewards? No. Do you understand this is a common worldview right now? That the planet is more important does not mean we neglect or abuse or exploit or injure the planet. We do not. But we understand this planet, as it currently is, is going to be destroyed and recreated anew. Praise God. That's a biblical worldview. The non-biblical worldview is this planet, there is no God. This is, this is our, our, our mothership. This is, our, our, this is the only place that, that we know that ha- can, can sustain life. If we don't take care of this planet, we're going to have a mass extinction event. We need to stop carbon emissions. We need to curb population. We need to make drastic interventions to reduce the burden and the footprint, because the planet ultimately is more important than the people. At least the masses of people. It's not more important than the very, very elite rich who um, (laughs) set this agenda. So our duty to God, is there a duty to God in the choices of foods that we eat? Do we have a duty to God in those choices? Do we honor God? Are we to honor God with our bodies and how we treat them? Do food choices make a difference? Should godly people make intelligent choices about what food they take into their bodies? And will those choices include what maintains the greatest health so they can be of the greatest usefulness in God's cause? Would they think that way, a godly person? Will such choices then, if, you're, if your mindset is, I want to be godly, I, I present myself to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Therefore, I want to make choices that will keep me in the greatest use for God's cause. Will, will that result then in a list of rules that we apply and pass out to all of our followers that they must eat this and can't eat that? No. We, we would leave people free. We would teach the principles of health, but we'd leave each individual free to decide in their unique physiological situation and, and circumstances what is best in that circumstance. For instance, might some persons really need to avoid eating peanut butter? Yes. Might others benefit from eating peanut butter? Yes. So it would be very foolish to make up a rule that uh, that everybody must eat peanut butter because some are he- helped by it, or no one should ever eat it because some are harmed by it. 
That would really be silly, wouldn't it? Yes. yes. It's sad how many sillinesses we've seen around, isn't it? Would this um, principle of being intelligent about what one eats, what one puts into their body, include medicines? Or would it be righteous for us to compel and mandate people put certain medicines in their bodies? Hmm. Then why did we see so much of that the last two years? Why do we see this argument coming from the churches that if you love people, you'll do this, you'll take this injection into your body instead of leaving people free to govern their spirit temple as they're convicted on the circumstances of their health and wisdom? Hmm. What about food choices not just for your health? Do we have a responsibility to make food choices that might impact the environment? being good stewards. Well, it's very interesting. The left-leaning folks that uh, are behind some of the stuff you would really oppose happening in society, World Economic Forum, um, they are actually very strongly pushing a vegetarian diet on people. They want to do away with meat eating, particularly beef, because their view is that the, uh, you know, the cow flatus um, causes, the methane causes a global warming. And so we need to reduce the cattle industry and stop eating beef. What's interesting also is that many Christian groups strongly ad- advance meat eating and, and that it is a righteous thing to do. Uh, I think this is a great example of Satan twisting things and causing confusion. Um, and they use a Bible text I'm going to read to you to support the idea that it's actually righteous to eat all th- this stuff. Uh, and because they, they, they confuse a certain element in the text. But let, let me read this. This is First Timothy 4, 1 through 5. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith, follow deceiving spirits, things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry in order to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth, for everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. And so they, they see the, this World Economic Forum and the leftists wanting to ban certain foods as an as precise and exact fulfillment of this, of this prophecy. And therefore you should eat. Go out and have a good steak. Go out and, and eat, a, eat a, a hamburger. This is what, what I've heard some actually preach from their pulpits. But Christians who use this to authorize eating everything misread what it says. There's a critical phrase there. And the critical phrase in the middle of the the very passage they're quoting is this, which God created to be received with thanksgiving. And if you go back to creation, you will find precisely what God created to be eaten. Fruits and nuts. Veggies weren't even on the list. But fruits and nuts. In Eden, they were not to eat animals. It was not part of the diet. Animals didn't come in until after the flood. And I am convinced, 100% certain, we will not have slaughterhouses in heaven or the earth made new, killing animals and eating them. It's not going to happen. God did authorize after the flood the eating of animals and then gave specific instructions on which ones were to be, could be eaten and could not be eaten. And this was based on the order in the food chain they were. 
first order food chain animals. These were people, these were animals that, uh, were not scavengers and did not, uh, and were not carnivores because you have the least amount of damage or toxins that make their way up into the food chain. Every time you, one animal eats another animal, any poisons or toxins in the one that, that, uh, was, was eaten, it concentrates higher the higher food chain you go. Do you remember back, I guess 30, 40 years ago now, we almost lost the bald eagles? Do you remember that? Do you remember why we almost lost the bald eagles? DDT, that's right, somebody remembered. DDT, DDT a pesticide. And it didn't harm the little gerbils and little little mice in the field, and it didn't harm the, the next order predator, the snake that ate the mouse, but that the eagles eating higher up the food chain, every level up the food chain, the DDT concentrated higher. And the eagles were being killed. God doesn't want that. So this is why this is, so point being. These were not rules he made up that were done away with the cross. These were simply the laws of health. And so I tell people, while the ceremonial system was done away with the cross, laws of health were not. So my personal view on this, even today, with all that I've said, some individuals have the best health eating animal products because of their physical health, because of their circumstances, where they are in the world. There are places in the world right now where people are starving to death except they get um, you know, UNICEF mission food of rice and chicken. White rice and chicken. That's all they got to eat. If they, only, if they refuse the chicken and eat just the rice, what happens? They get pellagra. They get terrible malnutrition and they'll die. There are plenty of places. So, so we don't make rules. We teach principles, leave people free to decide for themselves what is best in their circumstances. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are a God of truth, love, and freedom. And we pray that you will make us more effective in presenting your truth. We thank you so much for the sign that you've built into time to remind us that you're coming and you're making us holy. We pray that we will, we will honor and uplift and value uh, the Sabbath that you've put in time as your sign of truth, love, and liberty, that we will live your principles and shine forth brightly at this time in history. We pray in your holy name. Amen.